Last year, our family ticked off another of the national parks when we camped out in one of the newest parks called Indiana Dunes. It's in Indiana, you know. It's this phenomenal place in our country because from here to there, you drive north through miles and miles of farm country until out of nowhere, you run up into this like Midwest beach town. You didn't know that existed. Did it? Midwest beach town doesn't sound like it should go together. But as the name suggests, the area was marked out for its preservation because of these massive sand dunes which skirt the southern tip of Lake Michigan. If you've been to Kitty Hawk in North Carolina or any of the other dozen spots out west, you know that these sand dunes, these are crazy geological formations, if we could even call them geological formations. They are mountains of sand that are not sedentary. They move. It's kind of, kind of scary when you think about a mountain moving. In fact, many believe that's why Indiana Dunes was allocated as a national park because the decades of local preservation could not contain these massive amounts of sand. Geologists tell us that the dunes actually move inland several feet every year. Get that. It moves several feet every year. When we were there last September, the largest of the dunes, which has this majestic name of Mount Baldy, uh, which I take personal affront to as I'm closing in on that Mount Baldiness myself, it had already consumed one entire street and it was working on one of the, the ranger outposts where you could see it was literally like consuming the ranger outpost. It's crazy. You could hike up the face of one of the dunes and you could see where decades-old mature trees were covered almost completely to the very top with only a foot of green sprigs peeking through. It's the strange place in our country. What's even crazier to me is that Hoosiers, that's what we call Indianians, right? Indianians? I don't know if that's a thing. Hoosiers, they have been building beautiful, massive homes there for over a century. There's even a Frank Lloyd Wright home in the vicinity. The market is only going up and you can expect to pay 329% more for a home in Indiana Dunes compared to the rest of the state. That is crazy to me. It's a beautiful area, but it seems to me that the possibility of having your home completely covered in tons of sand outweighs whatever spectacular view you might gain for uh, maybe 10 years or so. But people have always taken these great risks in building their homes. They want to be in the it place. In fact, nearly two millennia ago, as I already referenced, Jesus of Nazareth concluded his most famous sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It spans three whole chapters in the book of Matthew. You think my notes are extensive. I don't have chapters in my sermons. He ends the whole sermon with this parable illustration about two men building their respective homes in the same general vicinity of each other. And now Jesus, who was trained in carpentry under his stepfather Joseph, he knew a thing or two about these construction sites. In fact, most men in this time, they built their own homes. So it was an illustration that had real-world application. I can just imagine the, that near the end of his preaching, there on the mountainside, Jesus probably drew everyone's attention to someone who was actually building a house down below. 
And as he was concluding the hour or so of the sermon, he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. In this story that we've all grown up with, Jesus writes of these two men building homes. The location seems similar, the structure identical, the construction the same in every way except one. One man took time and dug down deep into rock while the other man settled for a surface structure with no deep footers laid. For a time, I imagine, the two homes went on looking incredibly similar. Maybe the only difference to the community was that the one who dug down deep into rock, it took him a whole lot longer to build that house. Imagine he's still digging footers while the other decides to put on a sunroom on the back of the house. Can you imagine the ribbing that the first guy is getting at the local hardware store? Aren't you ever going to start building the house? You have been digging for weeks, man. The other guy, he's, he's got it built all the way. Forget about the hardware store gossip. Can you imagine the, uh, the what for that the first guy's wife is giving him? So-and-so has his, his house done. He had it done weeks ago. And we're still living in a camper, you know? Nothing wrong with living in a camper. But eventually, both homes are completed. And there they sit, side by side, Similar in almost every single way to the naked eye. But the builder of the first home, the one that's on the rock, he knows how very different these two homes are. In just about every situation, time reveals a lot. Maybe you're in the thick of something right now and you don't know which way to go. I know I've been criticized for being slow to act sometimes, but that is because I know that time will often reveal a whole lot for you. If you'll just think slowly and do slowly. Well, time reveals a lot, and so it does here. Because the region goes through there, what seems to be in the story, an annual rainy season. It rains hard. A flood rages, the winds howl, and when it's all said and done, when the sun finally comes out, the two homes could not look more different. One stands just as strong as the day it was completed. The other, it is in shambles. It is a pile of rocks at best. It is a trash heap of what once was. Can I tell you this morning, this ancient story is as relevant today as it was in the first century. And I'm positive that the vast majority of us have a passing familiarity with it. Even in our secular culture, the, the phrase building on the rock or shifting sands, they have retained their meaning from this parable. We can see some of the, those phrases back to this story. 
But maybe you're like me and you grew up in church. And when I read this text this morning to you, you probably had that all too familiar tune play across your mind that seems to go on forever and ever and ever. Amen. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his... And the rains... I don't have to sing it. It takes this four-verse story and turns it into a song that never ends. I hate it, but whatever. It struck me this week, as familiar as we are with this whole idea of building on the rock trope, I don't think we usually see the story in its original context. What does it mean to build on the rock? How can I make sure that my home is not built on sand? On a construction site, it's obvious. Even I can tell. In a much more important life setting, building on the rock, it could just stay a metaphor of being good, doing nice things, attending church, being a good citizen, build on the rock. This culture's sifting sands and shifting sands. I don't, don't let that bother you. But if we were to see it in the context of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus actually preaches the sermon, he actually tells us the whole point of the parable. And maybe not in detail how to build on the rock in particular, but it certainly gives us good insight as to how we ought to live. So look at verses 24 and 26 again. If you underline or if you mark in your Bible, you need to have this difference clearly pointed out for the next time you read it. Verse 24, the wise man builds this house on the rock. He's the one that Jesus says, hears the sayings of mine and does them. If you underline, highlight, circle, square, whatever, highlight does them. Transversely, Matthew 7.26, the foolish man, the one who only builds his house on sand, he's the one that Jesus says in verse 26, who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. Okay. That puts this story, this parable, into some more shoe leather, or since we're building, it helps us arm ourselves with some more hammer and nails as we try to build. This makes it even more understandable instead of just this nebulous saying of, you better build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, as good as that is. The wise hear and do, Jesus said. That's the difference. That's the point. The foolish hear and that's it. Let me unwrap that for the rest of our time today. Hearing and doing God's Word. Two points. You ready? <laughs> it's important for you to hear the Word of God. Vitally important for you to hear 
the Word of God. I hope everyone in here can say that by the time we leave this house of worship this morning, that you have heard the Word of Jesus. Not because of my voice. Goodness, not because of my voice. Not because how I preached or how I didn't preach. Not even necessarily what I say but because we have opened God's Word, we have read from it, and then hopefully you will have heard it taught and preached as it was originally meant to be heard and taught. Hearing the Word of God is important. I had every intention of going off on a tirade about how you need to be in church and how you need to hear God's Word regularly but I had to edit it down because you're here. And I'm glad you are. I truly am. I am so glad that you are here under the sound, not of my voice, but of the Word of God. I think sometimes I fall into the trap about preaching to people who aren't here. (laughs) And that is completely and wholly unhelpful. You are here. So if I ever preach to those that are outside these walls and make it us versus them and that kind of nonsense, forgive me for that. But let me just say this. This is my whole edited down part, okay? We probably need to have at some point a loving, good conversation, maybe even a debate, loving debate, about how often you need to be under the sound of God's Word. Now, I've got my opinion. (laughs) You've got yours. And we might not change each other's minds at the end of that discussion. But I will say this. Scripture teaches us that as we see the day of judgment approaching, if we look at the news and we say, man, this world, it's going down and down and down. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Do you know what the author of Hebrews says to do? If you've ever felt like this world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse down to the day of judgment, do you know what the author of Hebrews says? He says, go to church. (laughs) He does. Hebrews 10, 25. You ought to meet more regularly and more often so that you can exhort each other better. You say, Corey, Corey, Corey. No, no, no. That verse says that we ought to exhort each other better. If COVID taught us anything, it's that we exhort each other better when we're near each other. Aren't you glad when you were able to delete Zoom from off your computer, that stupid program? Hate that thing. So whether or not you're looking at attending this service and that service, I'm just going to say we exhort each other better when we are near each other. And that is in God's Word. Our church has scheduled services and Bible studies because we know that there is value in at very least hearing the Word of God. When Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, he tells them, Do not forsake the public reading of God's Word. He tells them about preaching, but then he also, he focuses on just reading God's Word together. I'm so thankful for David and and his kind of pointing us to that. He has taken this idea of the call to worship seriously. If we just open and read God's Word together, we are fulfilling 
what the Lord has commanded us to do. I know people will look at scheduled services and, and they think that it's just, it's just going by tradition. And maybe there is something to that. That whole three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek, Sunday school, get, get your kids here on Awana, all that stuff. But somewhere along the line, hear me on this, someone at New Hope said, you know, we need to hear the Word of God more often. So let's have another sermon. Let's begin a midweek Bible study. Somewhere along the line, someone said, I'm not hearing the word enough. And so we need to meet more regularly. That's my edited down version. Aren't you thankful? (laughs) Hearing the words of Jesus. That is important. So if you're here this morning, you probably agree with me that because you didn't just accidentally wake up and come to church today, right? (laughs) If that happened... More power to you. But you chose to be here because it's valuable to hear the Word of God. In its proper context, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is underlining the importance of hearing God's Word because on a weekday, a multitude of people just sat around and listened to Jesus teach on a mountainside for probably a couple of hours. Matthew chapter 5 verse Matthew ch- through chapter 7, it really is like the cliff notes. Get it? Sermon on the Mount, cliff notes? You're welcome. It really is the cliff notes of his Sermon on the Mount. Bare bones outline. That's what we're looking at, chapter 5 through 7. I do not believe this is the totality of the sermon here. But it is so good. These three chapters are so valuable. This congregation has just sat through in Matthew chapter 3, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those. They've heard things like hatred and lust. They're just as severe as murder and adultery. Jesus said that. Jesus has taught on marriage and divorce. He's preached on how we ought to love our enemies and go the second mile for them. They've even sat in on a private conversation that Jesus had with his Father when Jesus taught them how to pray in the model prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He has, parts of his sermon have been, don't worry, don't judge. All of this and probably a ton more the people have just finished listening to Jesus preach on. And my guess is, is that they're longing for more because it's just all so good. In fact, the whole account of the Sermon on the Mount ends by saying as much in verse 28 and 29. So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as a scribe. That word astonished there in verse 28, it literally means to strike out, not baseball, to knock over. So I think it's safe to say that they were blown away at Jesus' teaching. 
It sounded so good, so authoritative, so unlike the scribes who say, well, you've heard this and this and this and this and this. Jesus would start with, you have heard this, but then he's, I say to you, the word of God says this. Hearing God's word is important. But the most important part of the sermon is what takes place afterwards. The most important part. Got a couple of Bible college guys in here today, and homiletics will tell you differently. You got to have a hook, you got to have something that grabs their attention. That's good, you got to have that. The most important part of the sermon, though, is when I'm done, a benediction has been prayed, and you walk away. That is the most important part of the sermon. I'm not even talking about a three-minute altar call, as valuable as those might be. I mean, what will you do with the Word of God that you have heard when you get in your car, when you go to lunch, when you go back home? And as Jesus is closing His sermon that day, He doesn't say, now every head bowed, and every eye closed. He doesn't say a pianist is going to just pop up out of the mountainside and say, they're going to softly play. It's going to pull on your emotional heartstrings. He doesn't do that. He ends by saying, go. Build. Go. Build. Go and do. You've heard the word. Now do it. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended. The floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. As important as hearing God's Word is, doing God's Word is equally as important. Hear me on this point. If the totality of your Christian life can be summarized in I attend blank church, then you are on dangerous ground of merely hearing the teaching of Jesus and not doing what He says. Just look back on the last two chapters, okay? Chapters 5 and 6. This is some of the most revolutionary stuff that you will ever hear in your life. The Bible is not tame, by the way. This is, if this is true, it's is wild stuff. Jesus speaks revolutionary style words in chapters 5 through 7. I love C.S. Lewis. He, in, a, in a letter that he posted like three weeks before he passed, somebody had sent him a letter saying, don't you think you're being too legalistic about reading your Bible and, and trying to pray as much as you can every day? And he, my goodness, he grabbed pen and paper and he let the sarcasm fly. I love it. I love crotchety old men, apparently. 
he writes in his letter, it's always just possible that Jesus Christ actually meant what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, maybe, hear me on this, hold on, maybe Jesus was serious when he said to love your enemy. Maybe, just maybe, I know, I have a crazy thought here. Maybe, just maybe, he really meant for us, though obligated by the laws of that society, to carry the, the armor and the, the cloak of a Roman soldier one mile, obligated to do so. Maybe, just maybe, he really meant what he said when he said, no, 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 out of love for them and testimony of the faith, go a second mile for them. Maybe Jesus actually meant what he said. If Matthew 5-7 through 7 was actually lived out by the 2.2 billion people who profess to be Christians in this world today, our society and every society would be totally different. The meek would be the celebrities. The pure would be the ones who are celebrated. The peacemakers and those longing for righteousness, they would be the ones who get the votes in office. Our courts would dispense mercy and everyone would love it. Culture would be turned upside down by Christians being salt and light in the workplace and on the ball fields. The pornography industry would be toppled when we finally realize how severe God looks on unfaithfulness and the using of others for our own desires. Grudges would be a thing of the past. The 25% divorce rate among believers would be annihilated as loving husbands and honoring wives sought to preach Christ through their covenanted vows. Enemies would be loved and invited to our Sunday supper. Greed would be gone as we served God rather than mammon. In short, God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a summary of those three chapters. What would happen if the 2.2 billion Christians who say we believe this, and I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to you, what if we actually did what he told us to do? It would change everything. Jesus taught on, on all of that and probably a ton more in this one sermon. So now he just closes and essentially says, don't just hear it. Don't you dare just say, that was a good sermon. Do. Go. Build. Actually, love your enemy. Really, go the second mile for them. Don't live for the paycheck. Use the paycheck to live for God. If you don't do what Jesus says, if all of this has just been kept in theory, in our kids have been going through CTS, David mentioned that, if they just learn a ton of verses, as great as that is, they and we can find ourselves in verses 26 and 27. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not 
do them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we talking work salvation here? Are we talking I've got to earn God's grace? That's not it at all. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. I hope you have noticed the parallels between these two builders. They both heard, they both built, and the same storm came to both. Hear that last part? The same storm came to both of them. Please throw out the idea that if you're a Christian, then storms just don't seem to happen to you. That is utter nonsense, complete foolishness, absolutely unbiblical teaching that spits in the face of the 2.4 billion martyrs who have been murdered for their faith for Christ since the year 2000. Do you hear me? You go to the persecuted church and you try to sell that kind of stuff. If you just give your life to Jesus, all the storms and fires of this life, they're no big deal. Friend, they are dying for this. That is utter nonsense to say. Your life will just be better, sweeter. Everything will turn out good for you. Not so. Jesus himself warned in John 16, verse 33, in this life you have tribulation. You have trouble. And so Christian, you have to know the storm is going to come. That rain is going to descend. The floods will rush. The winds will beat upon the house. But is that house still standing at the end of it all? Is your faith still intact? I've known people who thank God for the storm. I don't understand it. They've got a stronger faith than I do. They have thanked God for the storm because it affirmed who God was and a and it approved their genuine, sincere faith in Him. And as many of them as I know who thank God for the storm, I know as many, if not more, who have had the same, similar storms and fell. Key in on that last part in verse 27, and great was its fall. That has to be one of the most devastating sentences in the gospel accounts. Megatosis. It's the Greek language there. Great was the fall. Megatosis. We all know what mega means, right? Self-explanatory. Mega. But only modern-day medical professionals will recognize that word for fall. Tosis. Doctors have taken its ancient meaning and they've used it to describe a, a condition among some patients where their eyelid muscles just stop and they're blinded because they cannot lift their eyelids. They are resigned to blindness, not because their eye doesn't work. The ocular, that works. Their muscles around their eyes, they have collapsed. It's fallen and will never have enough strength to rise again. Great was its fall. But I think Matthew's record is even worse than that physical blindness. The phrase, and great was its fall, in reference to this man's house, means that the impact of its fall was felt by many more than just him. You haven't heard anything else I've said this morning? Hear this. 
I know when we come to this text that preachers have been guilty of reading too much into these verses, and they will build whole sermons based solely upon the passage, and they will say, build a strong Christian home on the solid rock. I have sat under those sermons, and they use this story oftentimes as a jumping off point, and they never return to the text. It's not helpful. Some of them are. But doing that completely and totally is not helpful. They do that, though, because you have to understand the underlying implication of Jesus' telling a story about a house falling is that there is now a whole family and probably a whole generation who are affected by the fall of that house. I have seen that to be the case firsthand. When I was in junior high, my brother and I were given our first computer. It was from an older family member who was going to chuck it out after finishing college, and so they gave it to us. It was, it was awesome. It was this big, clunky PC that had the monitor that was like that deep and had a tower hard drive with floppy disk and this brand new thing called CD-ROM. On it. it was amazing. We felt like hackers in our room as we went through all of the files that they left on their folder it was nothing important at all. On a whim, though, I remember junior high. I don't remember all the specifics of it, but I clicked on a file and read a short story that they had submitted for a creative writing assignment at their university. Graduated from a major university. It was somewhat autobiographical, and it almost read like a diary as they wrote about their family's faithfulness to attend church every Sunday, but multiple ways in how they wrote it no one really ever got anything out of going to church. Each Sunday, they would sit in the pew and they would look at the ladies' hats that were all around them and they'd hear the gossip from women sitting around them about the other women's hats that weren't in style anymore and all that stuff. It was like three whole paragraphs about that. She wrote about having uh, to constantly nudge her two siblings awake in the middle of the sermon and how their mom's sole job throughout the entirety of the sermon was to provide them with snacks and crayons and gum and paper so that they would just be quiet. And as some of you are in the thick of that, I, that's, that's a real deal. She wrote about the ride home when her mom would ask the obligatory, what'd you learn about in Sunday school? And they would all hem and haul every single Sunday trying to recount at least one thing that they had learned something that meant something to them, but no one was ever able to. And she talks about how the whole story ends, the whole creative writing assignment ends by saying one day, one Sunday, dad broke in and said, I'm surprised at you girls not paying attention in church. I, for one, learned a lot today. There were 147 R's in today's bulletin. And that was it. And they all laughed. She ended the short story by saying, I guess we'll do it all again next week. Here's the thing. I know that family very personally. And from the outside looking in, they had everything. Everything. They heard God's word faithfully. And they are now on the second generation since a severe storm hit them. Now remember when my dad took me over to their house to literally help pick up the debris after this storm of sorts hit them. 
And I remember, for the first time in my life, seeing the utter collapse of a family as we sifted through little ruins of their life. I do not know one of them who is not still reeling emotionally, relationally, and spiritually from that storm. And great was its fall. It is real. Earlier in this week, I I brainstormed while I edited down certain parts of my sermon, I just kind of tacked this on at the end. I brainstormed, I wrote down a few reasons why we do not do what we hear from the Word of God. You take it for what it's worth. We say, it's just not practical. It's just not practical. Love your enemies. That does not work in the real world. It's just not practical. And we will use the excuse of looking at people and saying they're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That nonsense. And we'll say those words of Jesus, he was exaggerating, he was using hyperbole, he was just trying to get us to to move a little closer, to be a little nicer. He's just using all of those literary terms to, to bring us closer. It's just not practical to actually live like the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus teaches us to. And so we don't do what we hear in God's Word. Number two, we get deceived. Many of us in this room get deceived. Jesus warns earlier about false teachers who deceive many, twisting the words of Scripture. Mark Dever says of these wolves in sheep's clothing, he says they look like sheep, but they bite like wolves. How many people have fallen in a storm because they believed false teaching? And so they keep it on the surface. They don't ever dig down deep. They don't ever do. They just hear because they've gotten deceived. Number three, they treat Jesus like a reference instead of an authority. They treat Jesus like a reference instead of an authority. We pick and choose what parts of the Bible we actually want to obey, and in so doing, we relegate Jesus' words to mere suggestions when He did not mean them as such. Actual commands. And because we think that they're impractical or because they don't really make sense in our modern context or we try to throw in our society's standards and all that stuff, you will deceive yourself in thinking that they're just options to live your life by. There's a dozen more. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but let me cut to the heart of the issue because today in churches all across the globe, there are people who hear the Word of God, but they do not believe it. They have never wholly and totally given their life to Christ and trusted Him. And so they have kept it on the surface, attending as much as they possibly can without ever actually coming down with Christianity. 
They're going to go through the motions. They're going to sit in church. They're going to count how many R's are in the bulletin. Meanwhile, there is a storm brewing in the distance. The rain has just started drumming a tattoo on their brand new roof. The sand is shifting beneath their beautiful, foundationless home. Do not be Foolish, hear, and build. Hear it. You're here. Praise God you're here. Now go and live and do what He has commanded us to do. Because when that storm comes, I don't want to be the latter. And great was the fall. There's a man by the name of John Rippon. I don't know why he goes unknown amongst most Christian circles, but he lived in the 1700s. He was the pastor of a church, Carter's Lane Baptist Church, just outside London. He took it when he was in 1775, when he was 20 years old. Small church. When he was voted in as pastor, 40 people left the church, cutting it by just about half. Rippon stayed faithful. He pastored that church for 63 years. And at the time of his passing, it was the largest Baptist church in England. The reason you would know him, but not really know him, is because of number 221 in your hymn book. Where after a few years into his pastorate, He wrote, How Firm a Foundation. What's so interesting about John Rippon is not that he was just a faithful preacher, although he was. 63 years. You guys are stuck with me for 53 more years. Aside from writing firm foundation, you know what else is known about him? When he passed off the scene, there was a couple other pastors that came in and took the church for a little while, but none of them really stuck until until another young man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to that church. And after years and years of working, It ballooned and grew into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church where thousands, thousands, thousands of churches were started because of that one church. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word.
What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.